Well, good morning. Certainly is good to greet brothers and sisters in Christ. Glad to have uh, some folks visiting with us today. And uh, glad to welcome again all of those that are listening by means of uh, video or whatever you're listening to, live stream, dead stream, any stream. You know, it's just uh, good to have you join us. It's wonderful to be together in the house of the Lord for worship. And uh, just a reminder uh, for those that are here present, uh, there's sermon notes in your bulletin today. You may want to follow along to see if I really do follow what I'm saying I'm going to do. And then for those that are at home, I think that there's also a place that you can, you can acquire these as well. So it's good to be with you this morning. I want to just mention the fact that last week we uh, began a series, and uh, that series was Glory to the Newborn King. And Pastor Davis uh, talked about the fact that we are involved in declaring the newborn king, and uh, he talked about how to prepare, and very wonderfully encouraged us to prepare for this Christmas season, and I trust that you will do that. You've prepared your hearts. And then uh, this week, we come and we're looking at the area of the fact that we want to be somebody proclaiming something in this season, this glorious newborn king. But we're doing it in turbulent times. And we're going to be thinking about that this morning. And I trust that you'll be able to focus upon the fact that Christ is the Prince of Peace who's come to us in turbulent times, and I trust that he is comforting your heart wherever it is today. And, and I recognize any time we gather together as God's people, there are, there, there are those that are rejoicing, and there are those that are in deep distress, and there are those that are searching. And we will hope that this passage of Scripture that we're looking at today in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 2 will encourage your heart as you're thinking along these lines. But let's just have a word of prayer together. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you that you are the King of kings and Lord of lords. Thank you that we can sing songs that remind us and help us reflect upon the fact that glory to the newborn king. We, we want to proclaim that glory. We want to focus upon that glory. We want to remember that glory. And we pray that we would be people who are just so excited about who Christ is and also for what Christ has done for us that it causes us to be proclaimers of the good news, proclaimers of the fact that Jesus Christ is born and he's made a difference and he makes a difference every single day in our lives. So may the Spirit of God be our teacher, guiding us and leading us into truth. And we pray these things in our Savior's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. Are these turbulent times? Do we even need to ask that question? Maybe we change it from a question to a statement. These are turbulent times. And that's a, a truth. So how do we respond? Do we all notice? Do you think our culture notices that these are turbulent times? I, I believe they do. In fact, uh, it was interesting, a person I sometimes like to read some of the things he writes, uh, George Bernard Shaw, uh, he made a, an obvious statement, tongue-in-cheek. He said, if other planets are inhabited, 
they must be using this earth as their insane asylum. <laughs> in other words, this, this world in turbulent times, it's crazy. It really is. I mean, uh, you, 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 I almost click on the news with the idea that I wonder what can go wrong today. You know, I, I think that that's sort of the way. And when I click on the news, my wife walks out of the room. She says, you know, I, I'm not going to go there. Don't, don't need it. It's enough to be living with you. That's turbulent enough. <laughs> I have turbulent times for 52 years. So, so that's the way it is. But I, I often think that um, the world around us indeed has seemed to go crazy. But I want to I get you to get perspective. Because even though it's turbulent times around us today, do you realize that it has been turbulent times since Genesis 3? As sin entered into this world, turbulent times came. But it's interesting, I think, that we always focus upon where we are and we think that this is what makes it turbulent. And I tell you, no, it's living in a sinful world that makes it turbulent. In fact, uh, I, I think of the passage in 2 Timothy where it says there, these words, the Apostle Paul writing about the turmoil in the world. You should know this, Timothy, that in the last days there will be very difficult times. For people will love only themselves and their money. They will be boastful and proud, scoffing at God, disobedient to their parents, and ungrateful. They will consider nothing sacred. They will be unloving, unforgiving. They will slander others and have no self-control. They will be cruel and hate what is good. They will betray their friends, be reckless, be puffed up with pride, and love pleasure rather than God. They will act religious but they will reject the power that could make them godly. Stay away from people like that. Boy, doesn't that sound pretty contemporary? I, I think it does. And the Apostle Paul is saying, Timothy, heads up. These are turbulent times. And uh, it's interesting, the word that is used there in, in this translation I use, it's used as the word difficult, and it really means trying or uneasy. Um, and, and one person puts it this way, one grammarian, he says, uh, there are times when Christian hardly knows which way to turn or what to do. He has to live under a constant sense of hindrance and difficulty of one sort or another. And that's true. I mean, think of some of the, the challenges that are before us. Uh, what, what, what challenges create the turmoil? Well, should we talk about financial collapses? Uh, some of you who are uh, focused upon or have seen something of your, your financial reports that come from financial advisors. Uh, financial advisors said to me, uh, when I saw him last, he said, Bob, when they come, just put them away. Put the papers away. Don't think about it. And, and uh, because he's supposed to be thinking about it, and I'm thinking, is he really? But, <laughs> but then uh, maybe we could be talking about leadership crisis. Is there a leadership crisis? Yeah. Do we have any leaders, uh, you know, in, in our culture? Oh, yeah, we have leaders, but not necessarily heading in the right direction. And unfortunately, people are looking for leaders in all of the wrong places. Because, you see, leadership isn't in government, although they provide some sort of leadership. 
But our leadership really is to look to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's where our leadership is. Or maybe uh, we talk about the ecological crisis. Which one? You know, pick it. You know, uh, is, it, is it we're going to run out of resources? Is it that we're going to get too hot? Is it going to be we're going to get too cold? Back in the 70s, we were going into a global, you know, frigid time. Now we're, now we're being roasted. So which is it, you know? Or how about spiritual decay? Is there any spiritual decay? Um, I, I think we could obviously say, yes, there is. And uh, it's revealed in the ethical and moral collapse of our culture. And people realize sometimes that that's occurring. But the thing of spiritual decay is, the saddest thing is people don't even realize there is a spiritual decay because they've dismissed anything that has to do with spiritual things. Or maybe it's human injustices. And there are enough injustices to go around. Injustices are worldwide. They're not just in the United States. And they're, they're huge. And they're making it life difficult for people. Or maybe it's uh, religious conflicts. There are many religious conflicts in our world. And again, it's not just in the United States. It's worldwide. And we find out that the, the, the things are increasingly uh, degenerating in the area of religious conflicts. So these are turbulent times. I mean, I just listed, and you could make a longer list, but we don't have time. But you understand what I'm saying. These are turbulent times. And I have a feeling that the world recognizes the turmoil that it's in, but it's paralyzed by the sheer scope of the problems, or they don't want to acknowledge it. Maybe they're like my Doris, who, when the bad news comes, let's walk out of the room. You know, let, let's not focus upon those things. But you know what? You don't get a chance. You don't get a choice. Turbulent times are here. The question is, has God prepared you for the turbulent times? And I would submit to you today that he does. And he has. And he will continue to do that. Can there be peace on earth in the midst of the turmoil? I love that expression we're going to look at today, the Gospel of Luke, because it says, announced was, peace on earth, goodwill to men. We're all saying, we could only wish. And I say, we don't have to wish. We know it as a fact. Because Jesus Christ has come. And it's as true today when it was announced to those shepherds as it is to us. We're still hearing the same declaration that is just as true, just as appropriate. Peace on earth, goodwill to men. And it's all because of Jesus Christ. Paul gave the church of Rome... Uh, um, an interesting statement. He says, you know uh, how late it is. Time is running out. Wake up, for your salvation is nearer than when you first believed. Romans chapter 13, verse 11. In other words, we're closer to the culmination of what God has in, in, intended, and that's to give us a kingdom of peace. But do we have to just look into the future to look for a kingdom of peace, or can we look now into the provision that God has given to us in the person of Jesus Christ and find out that we can have peace in the midst of turmoil. And that's good news. And that's what we're going to think about today.
Can there be peace on earth? I say and submit to you this morning, yes. In fact, I want to focus on a proposition today. And the proposition is this, that in the turmoil of life, realize that the Prince of Peace has come, and he came to give, give peace, and he's given it to us. But the question is, are we accepting the peace that he has given? Or are we looking for something else? Have we artificially described what we think peace is? Or are we willing to see that the peace is lodged in a person, and that person is Jesus Christ, who is the Prince of Peace? So let's be thinking about that today. I'd like to just share with you, as you notice in your notes, I'd like to share with you just several observations about the turmoil in which we live. And the first observation is turbulent times that this account of Scripture is given. And let me read just verses 1 through 7. And we want to focus upon that right now. And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world would be registered. Now this census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child so it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought for her, forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Now, you know what we've just done? We've just put all these wonderful pictures. Isn't this wonderful? Pregnant woman getting ready to deliver. She's walking there peacefully, calmly, I've never seen a peaceful or calm pregnant woman ready to deliver. But anyway, she's, she's going this direction, and, you know, it's all palatial. I want to tell you, as they're going to Bethlehem, they're walking in turbulent times. These are hard times in which they were living. These are hard times in which the Prince of Peace would come. Now, look, I have just given some four observations of these turbulent times and it really grows out of our text first of all politically it was a time of terrible tyranny it, did you see in the text there it talks about this is the time of caesar augustus you know what he was he was a he was a cruel man in in fact it, it's kind of interesting his his name was octavius but after a, a brutal power struggle he takes over and uh, he is going to be uh, pr pronounced by the Roman Senate as the first emperor, and they honored him with the title Augustus. Do you know what Augustus means? It means the exalted one. You see, actually, he was, he was taking on an aspect of deity. He's starting to think of himself as God, and the Romans are starting to think of him as God because, you see, at this time it was a republic, but the republic wasn't working well. And so they were looking for someone to come in and be the one who would fix it all, who would bring peace into these times. And so Caesar, the Augustus, the exalted one, he comes in there and this government is abolished. And Caesar Augustus, uh, the name, by the way, he chose to use since they gave it to him. He says, yeah, that's who I am. I'm Caesar, the exalted one. What an arrogant man. But see, many times leaders can become arrogant. 
And when they become arrogant, they become despotic. And that's what he did. He became the supreme military emperor of Rome. And what he did, since the empire was so vast, he delegated his governing responsibilities to different individuals. And guess who one of those individuals was? Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. His name was called Herod. Herod the Great, by the way. He gave himself that title. Herod the Great. I think it's kind of interesting. He was appointed to be the ruler over Judea and Galilee, and he was known for his great public works. You know, he built the temple, Herod's temple. But he was also noted for his great cruelty, a cruel man. I, I was doing some uh, study about him, and it was kind of interesting to find out what historians say about Herod. Uh, the history of the rise of Herod's kingdom is a drama of extraordinary Moves of political chicanery accompanied by a succession of atrocities and crimes rising from jealousy mostly in Herod's own heart and against his own family. Another historian points out uh, about Herod, it's about his reign, it was almost unparalleled for reckless cruelty and bloodshed in which murder of the innocents of Bethlehem forms so trifling an episode among all the other horrible deeds that he was involved in of blood that it seemed not to derive a record in the pages of the Jewish historian Josephus. In other words, he didn't even talk about it. He says, Herod kills lots of people, and he's killing them all over the area. So Josephus didn't really make a big deal about it. That's how cruel this man was. And another historian points out the fact, he says, uh, it, it was safer to be Herod's dog than a member of Herod's family. For example, he murdered his wife, her grandfather, her brother, his three sons, because he was jealous of their popularity. I don't even think the dog was safe, but, you know, <laughs> says it's safer to be the dog. And, and, and I guess to summarize it, you could put it this way. His reign was one succession of monstrous crimes until he died. Turbulent times? Yeah, politically. Turbulent times, a time of spiritual corruption, spiritually. The religion of the Jews had become corrupt and legalistic at this time. The, the Greco-Roman Empire had actually been absorbed into one particular religious party, and they, it, it, this party then neutralized Scripture. They were called Sadducees. They were dismissing everything of, of Scripture, believing more the philosophy, the culture of that day, that everything is intellectual, everything is rational, everything is not spiritual and certainly not biblical. And so that's what the Sadducees were like. But there was another party. The other party was uh, uh, the ultra-fundamentalist party. And instead of neutralizing the scriptures like the Sadducees, they marginalized scripture by adding to scripture their traditions. And, you know, they had all sorts of traditions, and the traditions were elevated above Scripture. In fact, they weren't even paying attention to Scripture. They were paying attention to all of the traditions, or what the, the various um, religious leaders were writing about this, what the rabbis were saying, and they wrote the Mishnah, and, and the laws and the traditions, they became more important than even the Old Testament books. You see, religion was a show. 
and not a good show. Herod was building a temple. That's great. Great place. Great edifice. Great building. But the problem was there was no substance. You see, he was outwardly keeping the Mosaic law, he said. But at the same time, he had 10 wives and he was engaging in murder. Oh, well, it's good. At least you pay attention to the law and build a temple. <laughs> I hope all those 10 wives appreciate it. I hope all the people that you murdered appreciate it. Turbulent times, politically, spiritually, but also culturally. I think of it, it was a time of national hatred and prejudice. The Jews were hated by the Romans, very much so, because they thought that these Jews were exclusive. The Jews were very successful commercially, by the way. Uh, they had also been so successful that they created envy in the Roman Empire. And in fact, uh, they were levying high taxes against these successful Jews, but all of the taxes were not used in Judea. They were taken back to Rome. Huh, interesting. And Rome mocked their scruples and judged them as haters of other people because they were exclusive. In other words, they believed that, that their way was the right way. Any parallels to what people think about Christians today? Hmm, I think there could be. And, and, and the Jews were looked at and were rejected by Rome as being, these Jews are intolerant and not fitting into the polytheistic culture of Rome. In other words, Rome's got gods. What do you mean that there's only one God? There's only one way? Hmm, sounds pretty contemporary. You see, it was a time of national hatred. And it was a, a time of moral corruption, these turbulent times. A time of moral degeneration. Again, let me, let me quote from a historian that focused upon this time. The world was in a state of extraordinary moral degeneration. 2,000 lords in Rome had 1,300,000 slaves. That's just in Rome. At that time... There were 6 million slaves in the Roman Empire. The rich lived in utmost um, licentiousness. Chastity and marriage were the exception, while divorce and immorality were the rule. The religion of, Rome's of the Romans had no power to cope with the degeneracy of the times. The philosophy of the Greeks failed. None of the philosophies could meet the deep moral needs of the times. The emperors were monsters of crime luxury was beyond description the horrible character of vice and crime was witnessed by the excavated objects in pompeii seneca testifies that children were considered with great disfavor and infants were exposed to the elements in other words it was infanticide just leave them out there let them die and tacticus said that the spirit of the times was to corrupt and be corrupted. Wow. Turbulent times. So that palatial and, you know, very nice picture you have of Mary and Joseph going to Bethlehem, peace on earth, you know, blah, blah. These are turbulent times. And it's in the midst of turbulent times, our text says that there are people that were living turbulent lives. And these people were called shepherds. Do you see what it says in verse 8? 
Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flocks by night. Hmm. Interesting. You know, these are, these are people that, that needed to have some peace in their lives. Even though they were living in turbulent times, they were living turbulent lives in those turbulent times. It reminds me of a, a hymn, a, a hymn that was written back in the 1800s by uh, Edward Bickersheth, and, it, and it's, it was based upon the fact that he had, was on vacation and he had heard a sermon that morning on the book of Isaiah, chapter 26, verse 3, Thou will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed upon thee because he trusts in you. And as he was walking through that afternoon in the countryside, we find out that he was thinking about this passage. And then he had to visit a relative who was dying that afternoon. And he went to that relative and he sat with them for a while. And, but the passage of Scripture kept running through his head. And as it ran through his head, he wrote down these words. They're familiar to you, I trust. Peace, perfect peace, in this dark world of sin, the blood of Jesus whispers, peace within. Peace, perfect peace, by thronging duties pressed, to do the will of Jesus, this is rest. Peace, perfect peace, with sorrow surging round, on Jesus' bosom, naught but calm is found. Peace, perfect peace, with loved ones far away, in Jesus' keeping we are safe, and they peace, perfect peace, our futures all unknown. Jesus we know, and he is on the throne. He wrote those words and then came back and he read that to his relative on their deathbed. My friends, that's exactly what those shepherds needed in their turbulent times. They needed to have peace. They needed to have the hope of peace because it was a turbulent world and they lived turbulent lives and just two things that stand out about these shepherds that we see there in verse 8. Look at the environment in which they lived. It tells us from our text that this was in Bethlehem, verse 4, and this was a place historically used for, for uh, shepherding. It was probably near Medel Eder, which is the, called literally the Tower of the Flock. It was a popular belief at that time by, again, the traditions of the Jews, that Messiah was to be revealed in this area. And the places where sheep were used for temple sacrifices, and a lot of sheep. In fact, uh, a quarter of a million sheep were sacrificed during the, actual, the, the annual sacrifices for the Passover. Do you think the guys had a lot to do? I think so. And not only that, but this was a place, place where a danger was present. Did you see your text? They were watching over their flock. The idea was, in that word watching, it's this idea of the protecting of the sheep from attacks of the predators and the robbers that filled the land of Judea at this time. So this is, this is the environment in which they lived. But notice also the difficult lives that they had as they lived in this environment. They had lots of work. Can you imagine taking care of that many sheep? And by the way, sheep aren't the smartest things. That's why we're called the sheep of his pasture. Uh, and and not, it's, a, it's a, not the smartest animal, the sheer size of the task. It was a 24-7 job. It was physically demanding. 
They were rescuing wandering sheep. They were leading them. They were birthing sheep. They were helping those that had illnesses. And the, worst, the work conditions were not great. They were in, in the heat and the cold and low, low uh, loneliness and in poverty. And not only that, but they were considered religious outcasts. Can you imagine the people that are caring for the sacrifices were outcasts because they cared for the sacrifices? Yeah, really? Because you see, they were violating by their very job the tasks that they were given. And the tasks that they were given are pretty amazing. Because you see, they were birthing lambs, and in birthing lambs they were exposed to blood. And they were dealing with dead animals at times. And both of these things would make them unclean according to Jewish law. And the, the duties that they were involved in kept them from being qualified even to go to the temple where they could be cleansed. These are men, men who were in desperate times. But they were also living desperate lives. They were living lives of turmoil. I wonder if we often think of that. You know, uh, the Prince of Peace has come. But does it make any difference to you and me? Yeah, what did Jesus say about himself? He said these words. He said in John 14, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. That's what Jesus said. The one who comes as Prince of Peace. He comes to people just like shepherds who are living these, in these turbulent times, living in the, these turbulent lives, and he's saying, and I'm coming to you with peace. He also said, these things I have spoken to you in John 16, verse 33, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will ha have tribulation. Be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. Can you imagine coming up to people who have turbulent lives and announcing that kind of hope. That's what Jesus did. And what a wonderful truth it is. That brings us to this, in this second op, uh, observation, we see the environment in which they live, the difficult lives, and that leads us to this next point. A triumphant announcement. Walking into the middle of all of this turmoil there is this announcement that is given. You see it in verse 8. Excuse me, verse 9. It says, And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were greatly afraid. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. Isn't that amazing? What an amazing thing. There comes an, an announcement, an announcement of hope. An announcement that proclaims peace to a world that was not peaceful. Proclaiming peace to people who do not have peaceful lives. And he's proclaiming this, and it says, this is good news. 
This is what's happening. I want to just share with you a couple of observations there. That's amazing. First of all, it's a message of great joy. Isn't that what it says in verses 9 and 10? I bring tidings of great joy. That world needed joy. By the way, not happiness, but joy. And I make a distinction between those two things. You see, joy is not dependent upon circumstances. Happiness is. You can lose your happiness. All you have to do is be on the way to church and have a flat tire. <coughs> you know, all of a sudden, you're not happy, but you still can have joy. And, and, and here's this message of great joy. And it's a message of great deliverance. Verse 11, there is born to you a Savior. Years ago, somebody sent a card to me, and I, I kept this card. And, and, and it, every Christmas season, I read the words in that card. Notice what it says there, verse 11. What is born? A Savior. Listen to what this card said. If our greatest need had been information, God would have sent us an educator, or I would say an IT guy, you know. If our greatest need had been technology, God would have sent a scientist. If our greatest need had been money, God would have sent us an economist. If our greatest need had been pleasure, God would have sent us an entertainer. But our greatest need was forgiveness. God sent us a Savior. I love that. I just love that. Because you see, that is our greatest need. You may be here today and you think, my greatest need is, I got a, I got, I got a sick body. Well, guess what? If you've accepted Christ as your Savior, you're going to get a new one. <laughs> now, maybe not here on earth. But it says that one day we're going to have a body that has no, there's no more pain, no more suffering, and no more sorrow. That's, that's pretty good news. Some of you are hearing to say, well, you know, I've got, I've, got, I've, got, I've got a financial crisis facing me. I don't know how I'm going to ever pay these bills. And I want to tell you that the Prince of Peace says in the Word of God that We have been enriched with all spiritual blessings in Christ Jesus. And those blessings never run out. And those help you to see life from a different lens. And it's not looking at your your debt. It's looking at your assets. And your assets are Jesus Christ. I, I just love this message. But this announcement proclaiming peace was a message of great surprise. I mean, can you imagine? There, you know, after saying these things, he says, oh, it, it's, it's a baby. Really? That's going to change things? Oh, and it's a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. Seriously. What in the world are you going to do with a baby? And not only that, a poor baby. God's answer, if I could summarize it, was, I'm going to change the world. And that's what that baby's here to do. Because it's going to come into a turbulent world and people with turbulent lives, and he's going to give them tremendous hope. What a, what a fact that is being announced by those angels. You see, uh, he was not coming in royal robes, but in humble rags. Not in the trappings of prestige, which would be position and power and possessions, and you can add those things to that list. 
But he says, in the most unlikely way, in the most unlikely presence, God is providing a peace that surpasses, borrowing Scripture's words, all understanding. And this message also, this announcement was, it was a message of great peace. It says there in verses 13 and 14, did you read it there? On earth, peace, goodwill toward men. He, God's focus is upon not what you can do for him, but what he can do for you. He can give you peace. He's not interested in what works you can do for him. That is the product of having a peace with God. Then the people who have a peace with God then can produce, as it says in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10, then they can be involved in producing good works, which reflects the peace that they have and giving peace to other people. What a great truth. And the message, it just generated a great response. Let me just read it. It's self-explanatory. So it was, verse 15, when the angels had gone away from them into heaven that the shepherds said one to another, let us go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. And they came with haste and they found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. Now, when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all those who heard it marveled at these things which were told to them by the shepherds. What did they marvel at? Among other things, they marveled at the fact that in these tumultuous times, times of, of distress, and in lives that are distressed, there is someone who can change lives. It's the Prince of Peace. He can bring that peace into that mess. And it says, all those that marveled, but Mary kept all these things and pondered them her heart. Then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told them. There's three things that stand out. They went... They investigated what they saw. They saw, they saw the Savior. They saw this babe that had been promised. And then they didn't keep it to themselves. They told. They went, they saw, they told. That's what you do when you know you have the message of peace that can transform lives that are terrified, that are in tumult, that need to have hope. What a great truth this is. Once a person has really realized there's hope for turbulent times and troubled people and troubled lives, their excitement is unquenchable, even though troubles still exist. By the way, you know what? They saw the Savior. They realized who He was. And they went back to dumb sheep. And they went back to the bloody responsibilities that they had. They went back to the hard work. They went back, but they went back with a new thing. It's called hope. No longer despair. No longer defeat. But now the hope that they can have peace in turbulent times with turbulent lives. This... Uh, this season, a movie has come out, put out by Sight and Sound. 
You know the movie? I heard the bells. And uh, it's kind of interesting. I, I went and, and uh, heard this on Friday. I, my wife invited me out for a date. I finally got in her good side, and she said, hey, I'll take you to the movies. <laughs> and so uh, we went, and, and I had already prepared the message. I was already done. I had been done for about a week. And I, I, it was a great, great reminder. Very well done. But just to remind you of something there, you know, Longfellow, he lived a wonderful life in the beginning. He lived in a very wonderful place, Maine, obviously. You know, that's the early vestiges and foreshadowing of heaven. (laughs) I've got to have a lot of people jumping on me on there. But he had graduated college, and he had become a noted professor, and in 1832, he married his childhood friend and his sweetheart, and uh, the requirement for him to take his position where he had been appointed at Harvard University, uh, he was required to do some study in Europe because that was the center of education at that time, and so he took his wife uh, uh, of just three years, and they traveled to do some study. And in 1835, while he was there in Holland, his wife and infant daughter died. He was stunned by that death. He came back to the United States, and in 1843, he married another woman that was the love of his life, very clearly depicted in this movie that we saw, Frances Appleton. She was a daughter of a wealthy manufacturer, and they lived a rather idyllic life, and, uh, and he lived with her for 18 years and had a tremendous bond and more children, and then tragedy struck again. His wife, uh, depending upon which account you go by, was by herself for a moment, either in the movie's vet, uh, thing, it's, he had fallen asleep in another room, and she had come in contact with an open flame, and if you knew the, the, the way that they dressed at that time, it was easy to catch on fire, and, and it did. Another account said that he had been out for a walk. We don't know, I don't think. But what we do know this is that she died horribly. She burned to death. Now, you can imagine, was his life turbulent? Was his world turbulent? All those idyllic things are gone in a flash of fire. And he went into tremendous despair. And the despair even was heightened by the Civil War, bloody war. And then it was even heightened even more by his son being wounded severely in the Civil War. And he went into deep, what we would call depression. And it was during this time that he was asked to write a song for a Sunday school class in Boston, children's song. And, and he did. But as he sat down, something made him realize that there is hope in turbulent times because the Prince of Peace had come. And so he wrote the words to I Hear the Bells. 
One part of it says that the negative part, one of the verses says, and in despair I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. But God worked in his heart that that wasn't his whole story. Because in that same thing, it says, another verse says, then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor does he sleep. The wrong shall fail. The right prevail. With peace on earth, good will to men. You see, his life was transformed by hope in turbulent times because the hope was not in his circumstances. His hope was in the person of Jesus Christ, who is the Prince of Peace. And as he entered into that understanding, God is not dead, nor does he sleep. You may be here today, and as far as you're concerned, God's not very active in your life. Look what you have to face. Maybe some of it's the death of someone that really, you really loved, like Longfellow did. Maybe it's by disease or disappointment or discouragement or catastrophes financially. I don't know what it is, but I do know this, that in the midst of the darkest dark, God walks in with the brightest light, and he changes our life from despair to hope. And that's great news. So that brings up an interesting question. In the turmoil of life, realize that the Prince of Peace has come, and he's come to give us peace. Then, as a result of that, let the peace of God, which transcends our understanding, guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. When Paul wrote those words, he was writing those words from where? A prison. Turbulent times for him? Oh, yeah. Turbulent life? Oh, yeah. But what was in that place with him? The person of Jesus Christ. The one who never leaves us, who never forsakes us. This morning, I want to encourage you to realize that in this world in which God has placed you, you need to accept the peace that he offers. And that, first of all, you have to have peace with God. How do you have peace with God? You accept his gift of peace. You know, here's the good news, bad news. Or bad news, good news. The bad news is this. All have sinned, come short of the glory of God. That's why you live in turbulent times. That's why you live turbulent lives. That's the bad news. But the rest of that verse in Romans chapter 6 says this. But the gift of God, the gift of God that was announced by these angels to these shepherds, the gift of God is what? Eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. By the way, eternal life doesn't start at death. Eternal life starts the moment you accept the gift of God, which is eternal life. When I was a junior in high school, on a summer in the Adirondacks at a camp, my life was changed. My turbulent life was changed because I accepted the Prince of Peace. And at that moment, I entered into eternal life. A lot of things have happened since then. Not all good. A lot of turbulent things. 
But the thing that never changed is the peace that God gave never went away. Did it get bleak sometimes? Yeah. Did it get dim sometimes? Yeah. Did it go away? Never! Because Romans also tells us this in chapter 8. There is nothing that separates us from the love of God. Not even tribulation or distress. In other words, not even the turbulent times that enter our life. Nothing separates us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord, the one who offers us peace. The peace that was announced at Christmas. And you and I have to accept that gift of life, eternal life through Jesus Christ. And so my application to you today, if you're here today and you don't know the Prince of Peace, you don't know Jesus Christ, accept the fact that you're a sinner and accept the gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ. And you do that by faith. But there's another message here too, and that's for those of us who know the Prince of Peace. Make sure you keep your focus upon the fact that he's with you. Don't lose sight of that. Don't lose sight of it when everything is going wrong, when life looks like you got handed a bum deal. Everything that could go wrong has gone wrong, and then it's multiplied. Don't focus upon that. Focus upon the fact that you have peace because of Christ. And then focus upon this. And he's giving you the privilege of telling other people that they can have the same gift you have. That's the message of Christmas. That's the message of this season. We need to proclaim hope in hopeless times. And I trust that you'll do that. Don't keep the news to yourself. Did you see what those shepherds did? As soon as they heard the message, as soon as they saw the Savior, they went to see it, they experienced it, and then he told everybody about it. And that's what I challenge you to do. It changes your life because you can have the peace with God, and as a result of that, you can have the peace of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you this morning for the Word of God, and thank you for this account of Scripture. And it's good to be reminded during these times that you came to give us life and to give it to us more abundantly. I pray that we would be people who have accepted the gift of God, eternal life, peace, in our turbulent lives as we live in turbulent times. But I'm also praying, Father, today that those of us who know Christ as our Savior, that we would not keep that message to ourselves, but that we would be, in a sense, angels declaring the same truth. Unto you is born this day a Savior. Let the world know that. All the other saviors that they're looking for are the wrong ones. There's only one savior that changes our eternity, and that's Jesus Christ. So, Lord, let that be true in our lives. Let us be triumphant in Christ. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.